Hello, everyone. Welcome to this discussion, this conversation with the right on Jeremy Hunt, MP, the longest serving health secretary that Britain's had, I think. And he's here to talk about his book, Zero, which I thought when I first saw it was not the most um, upbeat uh, book title I'd ever come across. But it does, of course, have this dramatically um, ambitious subtitle of eliminating unnecessary deaths in a post-pandemic NHS. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, I'm director of the IFG. And this is a very timely discussion with the NHS facing a lot of pressure on staff, facing rising COVID numbers, again, record waiting lists and all the pressures we know about, and the government's plans for social care and the NHS under immense scrutiny. Just a few housekeeping notes before we plunge right in. Uh, Jeremy Hunt is gonna be, well, he has been signing uh, copies of his book on the landing before this, and you are uh, very welcome, indeed encouraged to buy them afterwards. You're saying proceeds to charity, which charity? Uh, Patient Safety Watch, and a special price for the IFG, half price today, <laughs> uh, so it's only 10 pounds. There you go, you don't get an awful lot of special offers, uh, discounts at the IFG. Um, we're gonna be live tweeting throughout from IFG events using the hashtag IFG Hunt. I'm gonna take questions from the online audience as well as the people who are, who've come here in person, brilliant to see you. And there's gonna be a video and sound recording on our website within 24 hours of the event, thanks to the terrific IFG team. Well, with that, welcome. Thank you. Tell me, um, I was plunging into this book ahead of this and um, thoroughly enjoyed it. It is, it is um, it is, we were discussing just before this, that surprisingly rare thing, a policy book by a minister. Uh, you were in your post a long time, some, some aren't, but you've also threaded it with a lot of personal stories, which I think are gonna hit home to a lot of people because the NHS touches absolutely everyone. W when did you sort of conceive of this? Well, I actually started thinking about it seven years ago when I was health secretary in the, in the summer of 2015. And um, I mean, it is an incredibly scary thing when you're made health secretary, uh, particularly because you're not a doctor and you're surrounded by doctors and nurses who've done a lot of training and really know their stuff. And they're looking at this politician, the other side of the table, and they're thinking, is this guy really gonna screw it all up for us? Um, and so my way in was to try and have as much contact as I could with patients and find out about things that have gone wrong and then try and get to the bottom of those stories. And I found that that leveled the playing field with doctors and nurses because they actually, the moment you talk about patients, they want to get to the bottom of it as well. They are really interested. That's what their life is about. And we, we had fantastically good discussions on the back of not some theoretical construct as to the NHS should be this or that, but this is what happened to Joe Smith, whose cancer wasn't diagnosed in time. And so I, I started collecting these pretty horrific stories. I mean, most of the time someone died or had a, a permanent injury as a result of something that went wrong. And I thought someone needs to um, tell everyone these stories and I got permission to publish a book as a cabinet minister, which is very unusual, from a lady who we've now all heard of called Sue Gray, who has subsequently become quite, quite well known. Who has stopped quite a few books in her time. <laughs> yes, indeed. And, 
Then, um, then I had the junior doctor strike, and it just didn't feel, I didn't feel I could publish these stories in that, it created a totally different context. Then I went to the Foreign Office, and then we had a pandemic, and all these things uh, delayed publishing it. But what they also allowed me to do was to say, well, okay, that's the problem. What is the solution? And in three lockdowns, I sat down and said, what would I do? What should I have done? What did I try to do? What worked? What didn't work? And so it ended up being quite a reflective book as well. Mm. This is a reporter's question in a way. I, I'm just intrigued by what you said at the beginning. How did you go about getting these stories? And did you get permission at the same time, which can be quite intrusive um, as, you're, yes. as you're writing down or memorizing you, you know, notes of someone who's telling an awful story about, as you said, perhaps a relative who's died? Well, the story I tell in the introduction is that um, I was sitting in Margaret Thatcher's funeral just five months after I became health secretary, and I heard the Bishop of London say in his eulogy that she'd given a handwritten reply to a letter from, I think it was an 11-year-old boy, and he read out the reply, which was very funny. And I sat there and I thought, I don't think I've seen a single letter from a patient in the five months I've been health secretary. There was an army of officials whose job it is to reply to letters on my behalf and make sure that I never have to see any of them. And so I then asked, could I see one letter a day um, as the first thing that uh, I, I do every day? And absolutely nothing happened. And then I, I chased it and I got, the first letter came and it said, dear Mr. Hunt, I'm just writing to tell you what fantastic care I had in, <laughs> in the NHS. And I said, no, that's not the point. I'm trying to find the problems. And then the next letter came and it was a, a real horror story. And I wrote and I apologized for what happened. And my reply got sent back and said, you're not allowed to apologize. And I actually knew my law. I'm not a lawyer, but I happen to know that an apology doesn't, isn't construed in English law as a, an omission of liability. So I, so the letter went out as was. But so I was getting these letters every day, and they kind of framed my day. Um, and they were really awful letters. Um, you know, one of the earliest ones was a father from Cumbria whose daughter killed herself just days after an appointment with a mental health nurse who had not thought there was anything at risk with this girl. Um, and so there were really, really difficult stories. Um, but they were kind of a way in. Um, and um, I ended up, as you would have seen, with some mm. quite radical solutions mm. or proposals. Mm. Which we're going to come on to. Let's start with the big picture, though. And um, in a sense, that's the money. Um, it's a lot of money. As you point out on page 63, I think I, I, I this is a, a book um, that is very readable, but does have charts in and tables. And one of the early interesting ones is, is, is showing that the UK uh, doesn't spend uh, much less uh, as a proportion of GDP than France, I'm looking, Germany, just um, Italy, Japan, uh, just more than, uh, it spends less than the U US. But you also point out that per head, um, perhaps that doesn't look so good. What should people think about, so it's 12.8% in, in that table, that we're spending as a proportion of GDP, a big number. What, well, should you, what, what should people expect? More? Just carry on the same? The numbers are huge, as you said. Well, the first thing is that we are all 
going to, so I, just to sort of cut to the chase, I didn't think the NHS had enough money when I was health secretary, which is why I spent a lot of time lobbying for it. Um, and I was successful in getting a big increase. I wasn't successful in getting a big increase for the social care budget. I still think it needs it. So I think that's very much unfinished business. Um, we're all going to have to spend more on our health and care. It's the thing that matters to us most of all. Uh, we are living for longer. We've got fantastic new medicines. I wouldn't be surprised if in the next five years we have a cure for dementia or at least something that stops symptoms deteriorating. That will be a fantastic advance for humanity and a nightmare for the person in charge of the NHS drugs budget. And if you're in America, you're going to spend more through your insurance premiums, your private insurance premiums. If you're in Germany or the Netherlands, you're going to spend more through your social insurance premiums. And if you're in Britain, Ireland or New Zealand, you're going to spend more through your taxes. And I, I think that it doesn't really matter where you are. That's, that's a fact of life. And the NHS will continue to need more. But I hope we don't just say it's only about money, because we, we broadly spend the same proportion of our GDP as France or Germany, give or take. But France has 20% more doctors per head, and Germany has 60% more doctors per head. So you don't wait as long to see a doctor in France or Germany as you do here, which is why you know, one of the biggest things that we need to do is reform the way that we decide how many doctors or nurses to train. I, um, I did uh, increase the numbers very significantly in, in 2016, 25% uh, increase in the number of doctors, nurses, and midwives we train. Um, but to give you an idea of why you need properly long timescales, not a single new doctor has entered the workforce as a result of that decision taken by Theresa May and me in 2016. The first ones will come in in 2024. And I think we have to recognise that we've got market failure. Um, a health secretary and a chancellor negotiating spending settlements are never going to care enough about how many doctors we've got in 10 years' time, because that's how long it takes to train a, a new GP. Cost £250,000 for each one. It's a lot of money. So it always ends up getting squeezed. And I think we need to find a way of taking that decision about how many doctors and nurses we train out of the Westminster parliamentary timetable mm. so that whoever the health sector is, whoever the government is, we are confident that we're always training enough doctors and nurses for the future. What do we spend money on that France and Germany don't then? In one word, yeah. locums. We spend six billion pounds every year on locum doctors and agency nurses. It's an outrageous sum of money. You are now getting newly qualified. If you are a newly qualified GP, increasingly now they're saying, I don't want to be a salaried GP. I don't want to be a partner. Um, I'm just going to be a locum. And if they do that full time at the age of 28, uh, they will get a salary of £210,000 a year. Uh, most of them don't do it full-time because it's too stressful, but you can see how we've skewed the system. We've actually lost control of the NHS workforce from a taxpayer's point of view. Um, it'd be much better to pay regular doctors more and have fewer locums, um, and mm. the real thing to do is to make sure that we've got enough supply of doctors coming into the workforce. Mm. 
The picture you're giving us, though, is that people should accept that this is, stuff is going to cost more and more. And I, I'm pushing on this partly because we had Wes Streeting, Shadow Health Secretary, here a few weeks ago. And um, I'm going to give you my view of what he said, because it wasn't completely clear-cut. But it seemed to me he was saying, essentially, Labour would try to do uh, not spend more and, and simply run it better through technology and other things. And you're saying, look, might be all kinds of improvements you can make, but people should accept that there, should, there needs to be more money. Well, one of the great pleasures of um, being on the back benches um, is that you can be completely honest about these things in a way that's difficult when you're having to stick rigorously to the government line. But um, I think we need to be honest that in health and care, what we need is a big increase in capacity. Uh, there's no point putting three billion quid extra into the NHS if you haven't got three billion quid's worth of extra doctors and nurses you can spend it on. All you'll do is end up inflating the pay of the workforce you already have. But we do need more doctors and nurses. That takes time. And we need to increase capacity steadily, but significantly, uh, not just in um, the health system, but in the care system as well. Um, and that is not something that can happen overnight, but it really does need to happen. Mm. You talk, um, you, you know, the thrust of this book is about trying to get rid of the, the, the causes of avoidable death and harm. And you do talk in it about lack of resources and about staffing shortfalls. But you also point out, and I want to come on to, talk a lot about the culture and the failure to learn from mistakes. Can you tell us what you think is wrong there that contributes to, as you said, these avoidable I mean, that, those are the pain of this, uh, the anecdotes in this book, avoidable, absolutely unnecessary deaths. Yes, well, the, I, I tackle head on the issue of resources and uh, workforce. And of course, they're linked because uh, more doctors means more salaries to pay. But I tackle them both head on and the implications they have for the safety of patient care. And there's no doubt that, you know, if a, if a GP is having to see 40 uh, 10-minute appointments in one day, they will be absolute and make a decision at the end of every single one of them. They are exhausted at the end of it, and they're more likely to make mistakes. And so we do need to sort that out. But actually, the majority of the book talks about cultural changes. And one of them is that we still have a terrible blame culture in the NHS. So the example I often give is, it, I asked lots and lots of uh, doctors and nurses, what's the most stressful thing that could ever happen to you or has ever happened to you in your career? And if you talk to a hospital doctor, they will usually say it's if a baby dies because of a mistake. And it's absolutely awful for the family. But actually, it's also terrible for the doctors, nurses and midwives who have to go home thinking that if they'd done things differently, that child might still be alive and have to come into work the next day um, thinking about that. And they want in that situation to be absolutely open and transparent and talk to the families about what happened and ask what systems and processes could be changed to make sure it doesn't happen again. We make that practically impossible. People are terrified of uh, being struck off by the GMC or the NMC they're worried about what the CQC will say. They're worried they'll get fired by their, uh, by their manager or the chief executive of their hospital. And of course, it's the easy route for a hospital when it's 
when dealing with very angry and distraught families to say, I'm really sorry, we, we, we had a bad apple as a doctor and we've, we fired that person. And that kind of, that's an easy solution, but it's very rarely the right solution. I'm not saying that there aren't any doctors or nurses who shouldn't be practicing. I mean, in an organization of 1.4 million people, you're going to have one or two cases, but it's very, very much the exception. And most of the time, what's happening is that ordinary human errors are being made, exactly the same errors that you and I and all of us make in our work, but, but we're not brave enough to do a job where when you make a mistake, someone could die. Doctors and nurses are, and the right response is to make it easy for people to speak openly and transparently about what happened so that um, you can learn. And the problem with the blame culture is learning the lessons from what went wrong is right at the bottom of the list. I mean, you know, if a baby's born disabled because of medical error, um, you know, cerebral palsy or something like that, it might take over five years for a court case to be settled. And so you end up with all the wrong behaviors, defensiveness, um, people not wanting to tell the truth, people's memories doing tricks with them because we actually deceive ourselves uh, sometimes when we, we made terrible mistakes. All this sort of stuff happens instead of the thing that matters the most, which is to learn from the mistake. So you, uh, you, what, what that produces is, is what you've called in this book uh, the cover-up culture. What do you think should be done about it? Because the, you know, the behavior you've described, mistakes yeah. as normal, so is the defensiveness in a way that you've described. So one of the things is that I think you need a safe space uh, when you have a tragedy, someone dying or something like that, before any lawyers get involved. Uh, in and which before lawyers can get involved? That before is lawyers, I think before lawyers can get involved, you can never uh, take away people's right to access the law. That's what the law is there for. But you need a period in which there is an independent investigation done so that, um, because people are obviously suspicious of an investigation that's done by the very organization that has been responsible for the harm done to a loved one. So you need a period of space to try and establish the truth before involving lawyers, that's number one. Uh, number two, um, we may talk about this some more, but we've got to get rid of the targets culture. I'm just unit. coming on to that. So um, and I, I, yeah. I'll just say very briefly, we have more targets than any other healthcare system in the world. And the problem is that targets mean that doctors and managers are looking over their shoulder to their line manager and patients get turned into numbers and it creates completely the wrong culture. And then the third thing, which is probably the single biggest thing that would reduce the amount of avoidable harm and death. And I, I genuinely, I wanted to do this as health secretary, but I genuinely had not realized how significant it is. We have got to scrap the change made in the 2004 GP contract, which means that GPs don't have individual lists of patients. Um, since that change, we are all attached to a GP surgery, mm. but not to a GP, except amazingly, in about 9% of practices around the country which have kept the old system. Now, in, and I did try and change this, and I was completely um, uh, outfoxed by the system. Uh, the, uh, the GP contract change I negotiated said that every patient had to have a named accountable GP. That was agreed to by the BMA. It is part of the GP contract today, and all that happened was that People up and down the country got a letter from their surgery saying, you know, dear Mr. Smythe, your name GP is Dr. Jones. 
and bugger all else changed. And they went straight back to how they were doing it before. And so, and, and what we found out last year was this extraordinary study from Norway, four and a half million patients, which showed that if you have the same uh, doctor over a long period of time, you are 30% less likely to go to hospital and 25% less likely to die. And that's for a number of reasons, but they're very obvious even to those of us who aren't doctors. You know, mm. if the doctor knows you and your family, uh, that context will be very helpful in uh, not missing a cancer or understanding uh, you know, what's clinical depression and what's just a low patch and all this kind of thing. And so that is a very, very important thing we need to change back. All right, I'm going to come away from this. Um, I've got, uh, lots more things I want to ask and, and go to questions. I'm still going to come away from this wondering about your safe space, because it seems to me that could be wishful thinking. You can't wish away the, um, as you said, the right, the right of people to sue and the fearfulness of medical practitioners about being sued. Well, um, we can reform the system, and some of them need legislative changes. But um, let me give you an example. Um, Look at, it's worth looking at New Zealand and worth looking at Japan and worth looking at Sweden. All those countries have adopted a model where, to a greater or lesser extent, if a patient is harmed, compensation is automatic. And when I was health secretary, I, was asked, I asked about this and I was told, you know, in New Zealand you have a menu which just says this has gone wrong and you get this compensation no legal case necessary. And I was told mm. we couldn't possibly afford that in the NHS because uh, the vast majority of patients don't sue the NHS when something goes wrong. And so you'd have enormous what, what's called deadweight cost of all these additional people you'd be paying compensation to. When we looked into this as a select committee, uh, which we published a few months ago, we found that New Zealand spends half what we spend in this country on clinical negligence compensation, half. So we spend 2% of total health spending, they spend 1%. Um, and Japan, which did, was much more cautious, they just introduced it for cerebral palsy in 2009. And they said, if you have severe cerebral palsy, automatic compensation, uh, we just want to learn from what went wrong. Since they did that, the number of cerebral pal palsy cases in Japan has dropped by about a third because the system has just got so much better at learning from what went wrong. So there are absolutely ways that we can do it. In this country, if your child is born severely disabled, the only way that you can get compensation is if a court agrees that a doctor or a hospital was clinically negligent. Now, mm. if you've got a severely disabled child, you really need the money. Um, very, very important. And so, of course, you're going to go to court and try and prove there was clinical negligence. And, of course, the doctors and midwives are going to try and prove there wasn't. And five years later, you may or may not end up with something. But no one's really thinking about learning lessons. Mm. Targets. You don't much like them, apart from a few that you brought in. Um, <laughs> what... Um, do you think they, they, they have no place? OK, so let's... let's let, Let's, let's do some therapy here, Bromwyn. I mean, first of all, you know, I completely understand why Tony Blair and Michael Barber bought in all those targets. And I'll go further. I would have done the same. You know, I come from a business background. 
you're putting billions of pounds of taxpayers' money in, you want to have some grip on the system and know that you're, you know, the system is changing. And some of Blair's targets were spectacularly successful. I mean, the four-hour A&E target, the 18-week elective time, waiting time target, probably for most ordinary people, the single biggest way their life changed over that period of government was shorter waiting times for the NHS. So they can work. But um, the, problem, and the problem with targets is that you know, having one or two is fine. If you have 100, it's like having none at all. And if you're a medical director or a chief executive of a hospital, there are so many targets that you could spend your whole life just thinking about ticking the boxes for targets. And what you do, so at the moment, six and a half million people waiting for their COVID treatment. Governments made it absolute, sorry, waiting for their uh, delayed treatment following the pandemic. The government's made it absolutely clear this is a big priority to bring down the COVID backlog. You can be absolutely sure there will be hundreds of people in the NHS going through those lists saying, how can we take people off these lists? What can we do? What wheeze can we do to say, oh, this person's had an initial appointment so they can be taken off the list. This person we don't need. And huge effort goes into administrative things rather than actually treating more patients. And um, it creates a dangerous culture where, as I say, patients become numbers. I mean, mm. you know, talk to Andrew Marr, and what he says is, mm. when he had his stroke, brilliant care from the NHS saved his life in hospital. Aftercare was shockingly bad. And why is that? Because the people treating Andrew got paid for sorting out his stroke in the hospital, and then he was shuffled off to someone else, a community team who had a different set of targets. No one looked at the whole person from start to finish. And that's what medicine should be about. Now, in my defense, because I did introduce a few targets, I, I did want to scrap all targets in the NHS, but I thought you've got to meet your targets first and then scrap them, because otherwise people will say you're just scrapping targets because you're not going to hit them. And unfortunately, I never got back to hitting the main target, so the moment never arose. Um, but I really do think now is the moment when we're, I'm worried we're about to make the same mistake again with the introduction of these integrated care boards, these new regional bodies who will, be, will have the ability to have local health monopolies. I think it's the right thing to do because it'll allow us to integrate care. But this is a new structure that's coming into the NHS. And what it could just be is an entire additional layer of bureaucracy on top of all the other bureaucracy that's already there. What we should do is say we're going to trust these new uh, local bodies that we want to run our NHS. You know, someone like Patricia Hewitt, former health secretary running the Integrated Care Board in uh, Norfolk. I mean, she knows, I mean, I, by the way, you know, was uh, haranguing her in Parliament when I was a backbencher and she was health secretary, but Patricia really does know the NHS backwards, and I'm sure she'll do a very good job in her ICB, but we need to let her get on with it, not say, these are the 170 targets that you have to meet every quarter, and I need to report every month mm. on how you're doing, um, because then she won't be able to do the reforms that really make the difference to patients in Norfolk. Mm. Let's talk about the pandemic a, a, a bit, which has um, happened since you were 
Health Secretary, and there are quite a lot of people around who say that we, don't, we weren't as well prepared as we should have been, and that's Jeremy Hunt's fault. Um, well, we, I think it's, um, the, the answer is uh, difficult to encapsulate in, in one sentence, as you've just seen from my hesitation in answering that. Um, we believed we were the best, one of the best prepared countries in the world. Um, and, you know, ministers, myself included, followed all the advice that we were given about what we needed to prepare for a pandemic. Um, but, and we had huge exercises, like opera, uh, Exercise Cygnus. I hosted a uh, meeting of all the G7 health ministers to talk about pandemic preparedness. Um, we had the Ebola epidemic when I was health secretary, which I think we, we were very successful in containing in West Africa. So I would not say that we um, didn't think about it and didn't do what we were advised to do, um, but we didn't get it right because the whole focus of the system, the chapter in the book that deals with this is called mm -hmm. groupthink, that the groupthink that existed amongst politicians and scientists um, and officials was that if we have a pandemic, it's likely to be similar to the pandemics we've had previously, in other words, flu pandemics, because that's what we generally had. And um, in a flu pandemic, you don't think about testing because mm -hmm. flu spreads so fast, there's not much point mm -hmm. in doing lots of testing. You don't have that long, you do have a, an asymptomatic period, but it's a much shorter one. And so in Exercise Cygnus, which was a huge thing that I was involved in, you can read the reports on exercise sickness, and there is not one mention of testing throughout. So my, my central recommendation in the book is that we need to have systems that are better at challenging groupthink. One of the things I'm disappointed about yeah. is that one of the recommendations that my committee made and <coughs> Greg, Clark, Greg Clark's committee made um, in our coronavirus lessons learned report is that the advice that SAGE gives to ministers in a pandemic should be published straight away. Mm. Now, we, I understand that advice to ministers in normal circumstances has to be kept confidential, but in a national emergency, I think if that SAGE advice had been published earlier, it would have been effectively peer-reviewed by all the other scientists in the country, and we would have said what instantly I was saying early on in the pandemic, why aren't we copying South Korea? Why are we dismantling test and trace instead of ramping it up, which is what we did in the early days? And because we didn't know that advice, we didn't have that peer review, and the government's rejected that recommendation, I'm afraid. But um, that's one of the things that I really think we should be thinking about. Mm. What would you do about social care? Social care is, um, you know, we can't think of this as separate to the NHS. Um, you know, a huge number, the largest proportion of hospital beds that uh, should be available for NHS patients are blocked because uh, hospitals can't get a care package for people in the community. And so there's, it's a, there's a direct impact on the ability of the NHS to deal with the COVID backlog and all you know, the ambulance delays that we're Really, if you ask people, hospital managers now, why is it that it, it takes an hour 
sometimes to get an ambulance if you've had a stroke. I mean, something that would have been unthinkable even three years ago. Uh, they're saying, well, it's because we can't get people out of hospital at the other end, so there's a blockage uh, when people arrive at A&E. So um, we have to do that. We have to integrate it with the, the health and care system. So just to sort of cut to the chase, what, what are the two things I would do? Number one, we have to recognise that there needs to be more funding for local authorities to do their core responsibilities when it comes to social care. Um, that is the one, I mean, I was in the cabinet uh, in 2010, I was culture secretary, that signed off the austerity package. Um, you, you don't have a crystal ball when you do that. I do think, and I appreciate not everyone will agree with me, that overall we did the right thing because we had to deal with the financial crisis and we did, in the end, put the economy back on its feet. But if there was one cut that I think in retrospect went too far, it was in social care, because it was, a, it was something you didn't notice. Um, it wasn't that no one had their care package reduced. It was just fewer new people needing care were able to access it. And so I think there does need to be more funding for local authorities. But the second thing is, I think we need to totally integrate the IT systems between the NHS and the social care. So you have a single health and care record that can be accessed across the whole health and care system. Um, I think that's the way that you'll properly be able to integrate the, the, the care that people receive. Thank you. And just before I turn to general questions, uh, there's a good lot uh, flooding in online and please get them ready uh, here. Perhaps we can just tilt a bit to the much less controversial topic of the, this, the, the health of the Conservative Party at the moment. <laughs> um, let me start with what, the, the health-related aspect of this. The Prime Minister and Ministers often say that the Prime Minister got the big calls right during the pandemic. Do you agree? I think it was, um, you know, as with everything to do with Boris, he never does anything by halves. And I think we got some things... Uh, badly wrong at the start, particularly in the first year. And then we got something spectacularly right in the second half. And we ended up with excess death rates about average. Um, and I think it was, but it, it, it was an average that I imagine came from two extremes. So in the first half of the pandemic, uh, we didn't follow what they were doing in Korea and Taiwan, which uh, was so successful in containing the virus, we ended up having to have a lockdown. And having got ourselves in that position, we took too long to implement it. The virus had really taken hold. Um, but at the very same time as that happened, <coughs> Boris's government was ordering 400 million doses of vaccines without actually knowing if they would work. And that meant that we had the best vaccine program and the MHRA uh, approved vaccines before any other regulator in the world, and we had uh, pretty much the best rollout as well. So unfortunately, it's one of those things it's impossible to, to give a clean view on, but that's, that is my view. What do you want to see from the COVID inquiry? Um, I want to see us better prepared, because I think we've all understood that because of globalization, we are much more at risk to um, viruses that can take root in any corner of the world. And so I, I think it's really important that we are better at picking up uh, viruses that may be dangerous and 
I really like the idea that Matt Ridley has been proposing, which is of a pandemic treaty where countries would agree to total transparency about all the viruses they're discovering in their labs. And it would be a smaller group of probably democracies who would agree to that to begin with. But gradually, over a 10, 15 year period, we could get all countries to sign up to it. And then we would be much better at spotting viruses early because speed is everything. If, that, if it seems difficult to imagine China and Russia signing up to a pandemic treaty, um, let's remember that they have both those countries have signed up to um, inspection frameworks for civil nuclear power, which means that even with all the mistrust there is now under the aegis of the IAA, you can see American inspectors inspecting Russian nuclear power plants, and Russian inspectors inspecting American nuclear power plants um, for safety. Uh, and that's something that, you know, it is possible to do it. So I think that's a big thing we could do. Mm. If Boris Johnson stays as prime minister, do you think the Conservatives can win a general election? Well, I'm on the record as saying no. Um, so it won't surprise you if I, if I say that. But um, let me say that I think the, the next election won't be decided on whether or not there were inappropriate parties in Downing Street during the pandemic. I think the next election will be decided on the economy. Mm. And the core reason that ordinary voters vote Conservative is because they think that uh, we will look after the economy better and therefore there'll be better prospects for them and their families. And at the moment, uh, because of all the global shocks that we've had, people don't feel that confidence. So I think that the the biggest single challenge is to get the economy growing again. Mm. When Boris Johnson um, won the leadership contest in which you stood, you said um, something like, I hope he's enjoying it as much as I'm enjoying not doing it. Can you see circumstances in which you would enjoy doing it? Um, I don't think that job is enjoyable. <laughs> um, let, me, let me say that. And I have, you know, loved my time on the back benches, um, partly because it it enables you to be reflective. Um, you know, obviously, as Health and Social Care Select Committee Chair, you don't have any actual power in the way that you have as a minister. But you would be amazed, you know, maybe as Health Secretary, 80, 90% of your time is spent not making big, long-term strategic changes, but firefighting. And it is really nice to spend time to think, what are the big changes that we need to make. Fred, I left you a loophole by focusing on enjoyment. Uh, would you stand? Um, I think we have to see what the circumstances are uh, and then uh, make, make the decision on that one. OK. I'm going to come to questions now. Let me start. There's a whole bunch about waiting lists, uh, one from Sean, uh, many other people, um, really, really saying, uh, how do we tackle them post-pandemic? Well, I think my argument in this book is that when you have got a way, first of all, we must tackle them. That was one of the big advances made in the, in the noughties. We bought down NHS waiting times, and we don't want to go back to an NHS where people are having to wait years and years for their care. Um, but I think we can learn from the way that Tony Blair and Michael Barber uh, 
tackled them because although they had some success, we also ended up with mid-staffs and we ended up with some big failures in care because of a target's culture that meant that proper compassion and care for patients became a second priority uh, and not the top priority. And so I personally think the way to do this is not top down. I think what we should do is to uh, say to each of the, I think it's 41 integrated care systems, look, you've got your challenge. It's a key priority to bring down those uh, people, number of people waiting for care, but also the safety and quality of care really matters. Uh, your integration with the social care system really matters. And um, we're going to give you your money. We're going to let you get on with it. And we're going to, rather like we do with Ofsted and schools, the CQC will be around and we'll publicly say how you've been getting along. But uh, I think we've got to create the headroom for innovation. I mm. think the trouble with targets being managed from the Department of Health and NHS England is they crowd out the room for innovation because, you know, someone is told in Devon, I just need that 320,000 number to be below 300,000 by the end of October. That's what I care about. And if that's the message you get, then you remove people's agency and you remove the ability for creativity. And most importantly, you create the wrong attitude to patients. Right, thanks. Let's come to here in the room. Okay, there's one there in the middle. Thanks. Uh, Julian McRae from Engage Britain. Um, really, really fascinating uh, set of issues you ran through there. I just want to touch on social care. Um, the 2010 spending review, you mentioned it. Um, I think if you reread the document, it will say that there will be no cuts in the actual service. It will all be efficiency gains, uh, which is a line the Treasury loves to use for virtually everything it cuts uh, when it does it initially. In a lot of other areas, we probably went a bit far. Uh, prisons are an obvious example where we turned around about 2016. In social care, we seem to have known, it's now really widely accepted, we've gone too far in reducing the service to the extent that in June, a big part of why we've got ambulances outside hospitals queuing is because we can't discharge into social care. Yet last year, we managed to raise a huge amount of money, but we didn't give anything of that money to improving the staffing, improving the care that can be given through social care. What do you think is going to unlock this politically, given it's highly recognised, there's front page news on it uh, all the time. Can we expect something to change in the next short period of time, or are we waiting for a spending review in three years' time? Well, um, Julian, I think, um, first of all, I know Engage Britain has done a lot of thinking about this and researching of, of attitudes. Um, my select committee did a report uh, very early on. We did it deliberately ahead of the comprehensive spending review. And we looked at uh, the, the three pressures on social care. First of all, uh, the increasing numbers of people coming to the system because of age. Secondly, the um, reduction in quality that's been apparent in some places. Uh, and then, and uh, then there's the increase in wages caused by the national living wage, but also the inflationary pressures we now have. And actually, the fourth one, of course, is the desire to deal with people who have catastrophic care costs, which the Dilmot reforms mm. try to do. And we looked at all of those, 
and we concluded that the minimum increase in the annual budget for social care needed to be £7 billion a year on top of the £18 billion a year that it currently gets adult social care by the end of the Parliament. What the government's announced is about a £2 billion increase in the annual budget, most of which will end up being swallowed up by the Dilnot reforms, which are very important. Um, but the, the core bit is missing. And I think what that means is that social care is back to the place that it was uh, during the period I was health secretary, which is sort of looking for handouts, budget to budget. Now, we did do that when I was health secretary. We, we would regularly give the social care budget after those initial cuts, I think pretty much every year it, it went up. But it's impossible to plan for the long term. It's very hand to mouth if you're waiting for a, a bailout when it comes to every budget. And that was, I think, mm. the, um, that's why I don't think it's an optimal way of dealing with it. Thank you. I'm coming to a few here in a moment, but let me just take one from uh, online, uh, Lizzie Wills. Uh, saying, I don't think anyone would disagree with your assessment that there, that there needs to be more capacity in the, in the NHS via more doctors and nurses, but how can we change things to incentivise more, uh, better, she says, recruitment and retention? Well, you need both recruitment and retention. Um, so just to bang the drum for uh, doctors having responsibility for individual lists of patients, I think there's some evidence uh, very striking evidence that it is far less stressful for a GP if amongst the 30 patients they see on a day, they know two-thirds of them. They can shoot through those patients much more quickly. Those patients probably much just as happy with a phone call in some cases or a, a video call um, if there's an existing relationship there. So I think continuity of care is a big way that we can improve job satisfaction for doctors and improve retention. Um, I think also just being able to say to the medical workforce that there's light under the, at the end of the tunnel. They're very realistic. They know you can't magic up lots of extra doctors mm. um, straight away. But if they knew there was a plan in place so that it wasn't always going to be like that, that could make a difference. Much more flexible working. I think one of the main reasons people become locums is not actually money. It's to be able to juggle family responsibilities, caring responsibilities, a busy lifestyle with professional responsibilities. If you could offer people the same flexibilities that they get as a locum, as a salaried NHS employee, that I think could make a, a very big difference. And then I think we need to recognize that um, until we start training more doctors at home, we are going to need to um, have people coming from overseas uh, they make a brilliant contribution to the NHS. 24% of doctors are foreign trained and we would fall over without them. Um, and we, I think, should look at having a green list of countries where we trust the medical training, Germany, Canada, Australia, and make it incredibly easy for doctors who want to move here from those countries to do so without having to retake lots and lots of exams. Thank you. Come here. Chris Smythe from The Times. Uh, we've talked a lot, uh, not in this book, over many years about how important it is that doctors and other clinicians feel able to admit their mistakes. Do you think the same applies to, to government? I mean, we, we see lots of examples of government making a mistake to take just today's example about appointing someone with Chris Pincher's record to, to the whip's office. And the response of government is usually to sort of deny there was any kind of problem and get it dragged out of them. Do, do you think it would be better government if ministers, prime ministers were able to say, 
yes, this was a mistake. Let's work out how we went wrong. Uh, and you know, we obviously call it a U-turn. Others jump on them. Would we be better gov governed if they could admit a mistake? And how, if so, how do we, we get there? Well, it's a very thoughtful question, and I did think about it a lot when I was writing this book, because I was you know, arguing we need to have a no-blame culture in the NHS. And so I asked myself, should we have a no-blame culture in politics? And um, I find myself torn on it, because actually I do think the sometimes vicious accountability that we have in Parliament is a healthy part of our democracy, and it, it's what reminds me when I was Health Secretary or Foreign Secretary every day going to Parliament for those uh, grueling encounters that in the end we are the servants and the people are the bosses and so you gain something from that accountability um, but I do think to answer your question directly we should give more space for politicians to say when they get things wrong because in the end people want solutions and I, I have to say that and you, I know, because you were health correspondent before, and you followed everything I did as health secretary with a magnifying glass, Chris. But, you know, I, I've been very surprised at the positive reaction I've had to zero. I mean, I thought, you know, first of all, what are people going to say about a book in which every chapter starts with a disaster that's happened in the NHS, given how much we love the NHS? And secondly, what are they going to say about a health secretary who talks about all his mistakes? And I've actually had really no criticism for doing that at all, which was a big surprise for me. Um, so I think actually there is a market for, um, for a bit more transparency and honesty, but I'm realistic enough to know that that's never going to change Prime Minister's questions, and they will, that, will continue to, that will continue to be an element of theatre, and there should continue to be an element of theatre about it, because it is, it is part of what makes our politicians, in my judgment, more accountable than politicians anywhere in the world, except perhaps Australia, which I think is even more brutal. Okay, we've got uh, all kinds of hands up um, here. Uh, let me take uh, two more, one here and one on the aisle. Let's take those two together. I'll try and get round uh, lots of people here. There's a whole cluster about cover-up culture online, which I might come back to if we have time. Hi, um, I'm Toby Bonvoisin. I was working as a junior doctor in the first wave, and I'm now a PhD student at Oxford. Um, I'd like to ask you more about the pandemic preparedness plans. The varying characteristics of new pathogens, such as how they're transmitted and how long someone's infectious for, obviously make a, a huge difference um, to how the outbreak plays out. Will our future plans have a range of scenarios and also proposed like study designs for those different scenarios um, based on those characteristics. So like if you've got a virus mostly transmitted by physical touch that's got like high mortality and affects young people more, or you've got an airborne virus that mostly affects children and the elderly more, can we make more flexible plans? Okay, great. And let's let's take another one at the same time here. Hi, Mr Hunt, uh, Latika Burke from the Sydney Morning Herald. I'm not sure how familiar you are with Australia's system, but I wonder if you think there's any appetite or even ability in the UK to have a private public model because universal healthcare is something Australians pride and take really seriously, but it's not a culture war and there's also great acceptance for private health cover which then alleviates the burden on the universal system. Brilliant. They're two really interesting questions. Okay. Um, well, um, on that question, I mean... There are endless debates about funding structures, and, uh, and I, 
you know, I understand how the Australian model works and it has some strengths. Um, but I actually think ultimately it is a distraction. And it's also so politically toxic that if you start that debate up, you will end up talking about nothing else. And actually, the, the big challenges that we face in the UK and you face in Australia uh, can be solved within the systems that we have. Um, but they just need, in the UK's case, we need to have way better workforce planning than we have. Um, we've shown that with our taxpayer-funded system, we are actually prepared to put additional funding in. So I don't, you know, and we're funding it at, as, as we've been talking about it, broadly the same proportions of GDP as other countries. But what I would say is that despite our very different systems, I think we should always be prepared to learn. Um, and, you know, I think the American system is an atrocious system, which I wouldn't wish on any country. But there is some fantastic innovation, particularly in technology, um, which we should be very open to um, because it could make a big difference in the NHS. Your question, Toby. Um, Absolutely, we've got to be very flexible um, thinking about different types of pathogens. And I think actually it relates to Chris's question earlier. Um, one of the times when politics definitely needs to be less yaboo is during pandemics. I said many times in my scrutiny role that I would much rather a government that changes course quickly when the evidence changes about the type of pathogen we're facing or the most effective way of dealing with it. And we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't have been criticizing Boris Johnson or Matt Hancock for U-turns at various moments. Quite the opposite, we should be welcoming the fact that they were prepared to change direction. Because actually the optimal thing is, is a government that changes direction regularly on the basis of the latest available evidence. Thanks very much. Let's take another two here. In, in the front here and, and on the aisle. George Hosking, Charity Wave Trust. I don't know the current figure, but some years ago, a National Health Service Board in the northwest of England calculated how much of its overall budget was being spent on prevention. And the answer they came up with was between 3 and 4%. Um, we all know that prevention is better than cure, but we seem to spend very little on prevention in health in, in this country. Uh, I've seen various estimates of costs, for example, the cost of adverse childhood experiences uh, in excess of, of 50 billion a year in this country. In Scotland, the Christie Commission uh, into public spending estimated that 40% of local public spending was only necessary because we didn't intervene early enough in the pathway of problems developing. How do we create a culture where we invest enough in prevention? Thank you. And here on the aisle. Thank you. I'm Ben Glaze from the Daily Mirror. Um, notwithstanding how much you might uh, enjoy being in number 10, do you think you could win a party leadership election? And then after that, do you think you, you could win a general election? Um, I, I'm afraid these are very hypothetical questions, which uh, I wouldn't pretend to have got my head around remotely. But uh, uh, thank you for asking anyway. I'm going to go straight to the question on prevention. Um, and um, uh, you're absolutely right. In fact, the OECD has quantified it from memory. 10% of all healthcare costs in modern healthcare systems come from picking up the pieces of things that have gone wrong. So that's one element of waste that directly relates to avoidable harm and death, but that could be prevented with better processes for the safety of care. Um, 
the NHS should have more incentive to prevent uh, people getting ill than any other system in the world because the state has to pick up the pieces when they do get ill. Um, but for some reason, we've set up structures, uh, particularly the internal market, which is why I think we're right now to dismantle the internal market, which rewards hospital activity, rewards treatment, uh, rather than uh, preventing the need for treatment in the first place. I really hope these new integrated care boards will change that so that we do start focusing more on prevention. But to do that, we've got to do some um, sort of things in the plumbing. So I think, for example, it's very important if, if the new integrated care boards knew in real time how much every patient in Surrey had cost them in the last 12 months, and then they were able to identify the patients that had cost them, or cost the NHS, you know, more than 5,000 pounds to look after, they would then start to look at those patients and say, well, what could we do to prevent these patients getting ill in the first place? And it's a big change in mindset, but it is the, literally the only way we will stop our health systems bankrupting us. And um, I think the, the NHS is behind in this, but actually all healthcare systems are behind in it. And I think that um, there is a very common understanding across the NHS now that prevention is better than cure. By the way, very good example of that is investing in the social care system. It costs 50 pounds a night to send someone round to someone's home, sorry, 50 pounds a day to send someone round to someone's home to check up on them. It costs 300 pounds a day to look after them in a hospital. So it is much, much cheaper to look after people and keep them safe and healthy at home than wait until things deteriorate. Um, great. Let me just try and squeeze in a few more from the room um, here in the middle. I'm Amy Gandon. I'm a recent ex-civil servant from the Department of Health. Um, I guess the elephant in the room um, when we talk about kind of spiralling costs and increasing strain on NHS capacity is demographic change. Um, you know, but I think we shy away from that debate because it sometimes feels uh, uncomfortable. Um, it's sort of in the public consciousness somehow. Um, should we still be striving as a society to be living longer, especially when it asks so much of our public services and the younger generation who are having to pay for it and work longer? Okay. Amy, thank you for that. And the, the couple of, I mean, that was one of them, the terrific questions you've asked, um, which have come through to me here. Um, was there one in front? No, all right, straight behind, uh, straight behind Amy. Thank you, Nathan Draper from the Epilepsy Society. Um, I wondered if you could touch on patient safety, particularly with the recent appointment of the Patient Safety Commissioner, uh, what you'd like that role to achieve, and again, with particular reference to Valparate, which I know you've campaigned on very heavily, uh, and other anti-epileptic drugs, which we know can cause harm to unborn babies. Um, so. Yeah. What can the government do? What can the Patient Safety Commissioner do? Well, very important questions. And in fact, one of the stories in my book is the tragic death of Connor Sparrowhawk, who died after having a, a fit in a bath on his own and ended up drowning. Um, but um, I, I think that the, one of the things that the... One of the gaps in the system is that where people have unexpected side effects from medicines... Um, that they think aren't quite right. 
uh, and what, not what they were led to expect, there isn't somewhere automatic to go. And that's, that's the first job of the Patient Safety Commissioner. Maybe it could go to something broader over time. Um, with Valproate, I still cannot understand why we are um, not taking more care over the prescription of uh, Valproate to pregnant women, given that we know that it, there is a significant chance that it will damage the baby, and we are still having every year babies born disabled because their mum took Valproate. Um, and I just, I think it's something where we need to have many, many more checks and balances in place uh, to make sure that everyone who is of childbearing age knows the risks and that the NHS intervenes earlier if they think that, that someone is pregnant and taking Valproate. Uh, sorry, your question, which was about the ageing society. I, I and, think it's, and, and who pays? I mean, and who pays? Very, very, the burden yeah. falling on the younger generation. I, I think it's a wonderful thing, um, actually. I mean, I'm 55, and I'm thinking, I've got another 20 years of working life. That's another career. Maybe a writer, you know. Um, and uh, so I think it's a great thing. Greatest but, uh, respect. I'm not sure the sales are going to pay for the NHS. But. No, I don't <laughs> think they're going to pay for the... No, I'm yeah. talking about me. Yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> but I, I think the... Um, uh, although all the proceeds of this book go to charity, I should add. Um, you did, but, you um, did, you did. But I think the, um, the answer to your question is, I think it's a great thing, but we've got to be honest about the trade-offs. So that will mean working for longer. That will mean the pension age going up. Um, the coalition government made some very brave changes in increasing the pension age with the benefit of hindsight. Captain Hindsight and all that, I wish we'd gone even further and said the pension age will automatically rise with life expectancy to an agreed formula, because I think we need to be honest with people about that. Um, and I think that there are um, many ways that we can make it a great success, but um, it does mean uh, that we're going to be having, uh, we need to have a big national debate about the health and care system, because, you know, unless we evolve, the pressure will become unsustainable. We are going to have to leave it there. So I can't get back into questions of people um, using the equity in their house and this kind of thing. It didn't work out so well for Theresa May's manifesto. Um, terrific questions uh, that have come in online. Uh, those in the room, thank you very much. Thank you, people, for coming. And please join me in thanking Jeremy Hunt. Thank you.